0: This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com.
1: Welcome to the Solomon Success Show, where we explore the timeless wisdom of King Solomon and the Bible as it relates to business and investing. False prophets and get rich quick schemes are everywhere. Let's not be distracted by these. Instead, Let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason
0: Hartman. Hi there, it's Jason Hartman, your host, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Solomon Success Show with Biblical Wisdom for Business and Investing. Let's go to today's lesson, and then I'll come back on and we'll have our main portion with our guest relating to that lesson.
2: The notion of governments extracting resources from their populace has existed as long as there have been governments. The history of humanity is largely one of theft and violence. It is only in recent times when the notion of ethical government has been one that a majority of people believed in. For much of recent history, the United States of America has been viewed as the land of opportunity that oppressed people from other countries viewed as the safe harbor of their hopes and dreams. However, the government of the United States has run itself on a highly ruinous course. In the past century, the pace of government spending has accelerated prodigiously. This has happened in response to economic disruption, wars, and attempts to steer society through spending on social programs. The problem that this trend has created is one where the rate of government spending has grown so fast that it must continually borrow more with each passing year to meet its spending commitments. This creates an even more problematic future, since more promises for future spending have been made than can ever possibly be paid without extracting exorbitant amounts of capital from the hands of the populace. There is a growing number of people who believe that the method the government will use to extract this capital is through indirect seizure of people's retirement accounts. In his letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. St. Paul is showing us the virtues of honest service. There is not much reason for hope that the government entities and politicians who run them will suddenly become responsible and ethical. What the government shows us is the example that we should push away from, what we should seek to avoid. We should seek to live an ethical, godly life in all that we do. Dr. Jerome Corsi is editor of the Red Alert Newsletter. He recently authored What Went Wrong, The Inside Story of the GOP Debacle of 2012, and How It Can Be Avoided. Corsi discusses how Obama is trying to take control of people's 401ks to balance the budget. Dr. Jerome Corsi is a senior staff reporter for the World Net Daily, where he works as an investigative reporter. In 2004, Dr. Corsi co-authored the number one New York Times bestseller, Unfit for Command, Swift Boat Veterans Speak Out Against John Kerry. Dr. Corsi is a frequent guest on talk radio shows nationally and has made repeated television appearances on Fox News, MSNBC, CNN News, and
0: Fox Business News. That was today's lesson. Let's get to our guest. But before we do that, please, regardless of what platform you're listening to us on, whether it be iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud, please go write us a review. We'd really appreciate that. And check out the free resources at our website, SolomonSuccess.com. Here's today's main segment. Hey, it's my pleasure to have Jerome Corsi on with us for just a moment here to, to just talk about a single quick issue, and that is Obama's plan to take away or take control of people's 401ks. We've talked a lot about this on prior shows, and Jerry has been on some other shows talking about some other topics and books that he's written, and it's great to have him on to talk about this. Jerry, welcome. How are you?
3: I'm doing great, Jason. Good to be with you again. Thank you.
0: It's good to have you back, and I know this is just a quickie discussion here, but what are your thoughts on the possible power grab of our 401ks and IRAs and and, and retirement funds in this country?
3: Well, I I just warn people this is a huge pot of money. It's sitting there, typically sitting in banks or investments, and the government can see it. Now, the Obama administration has made various overtures. They've held hearings. They've had the Department of Labor look into it, public hearings, and they've kind of been around the edges of the topic, which is, well, maybe we should require a portion of these fees to go into a government created annuity. In other words, have you return the money to the Treasury? With an IOU to pay you something in the future for that money. The the reason I'm concerned about it is as soon as the government, like the United States under the Obama administration, we've tripled. Well, our debt is now at 16, going to 17 trillion from 10 trillion when George W. Bush took over. So, you know, we're about to double at some point or other during the Obama administration. Looks like the trend continues. Our national debt in let's say eight years. That kind of an alarming increase in national debt usually at some point it's going to force the government. We can't just keep re, you know, buying our own debt under these quantitative easing programs of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet won't absorb this much debt at some point or other. So the concern I've got is that other countries like Argentina have actually gone in and nationalized retirement co- accounts one way or the other and effectively taken the money. Maybe they've left IOUs or guarantees, which may or may not have gotten fulfilled. Uh, and it alarmed me, too, seeing in Cyprus, when Cyprus was uh, faced with having to get yet another government bailout organized by the International Monetary Fund and the EU. And basically, the international bankers just confiscated a portion of the savings deposits. Now, if this can happen in a Western democracy belonging to the EU, then who's to say anybody's deposits are really safe? And, again, it's not that I'm saying the Obama administration is breathing down your neck and it's going to take your R-401K tomorrow. I'm just saying it's something to think about and to watch very carefully because the overtures have already been made by the Obama administration, and I take the fact the overtures have been made as a serious event.
0: Do you do you think that they will orchestrate a false flag event, or there'll just be a, a market crash? I mean, how would they lead into this type of thing, you know, and and try and make it palatable in some way?
3: Well, I'm not sure a false flag would be created, or any event that occurred as a negative event could be jumped on by the administration. I mean, you've seen the Obama administration do this. We get the um, the Newtown shoot, Newtown shoot shootings, or any. School shooting, and immediately the Obama administration pounces on that tragedy to push a gun control agenda. So any negative, you know, downgrading of the United States, any kind of a, a pulling out of the Federal Reserve in the amount of quantitative easing, the amount of our Treasury debt the Federal Reserve is willing to buy, that could result, for instance, in an increase in interest rates, which would make the cost of financing our debt tremendously more expensive any of these situations could precipitate the government saying, well, let's just take X amount of you know, hundreds of millions, billions, trillion, whatever the government decides it wants, somehow or other of private savings re- accounts, you know, maybe issue them all government annuities or government guarantees, to take the cash and use the cash to solve the financial crisis at hand.
0: And it never will. <laughs> because well,
3: unfortunately, what the Western economies are doing is, you know, this is not a recession. This is not a typical Keynesian post-war downturn. My analysis has been from the beginning that we are in a structural global downturn precipitated by opening up labor markets to underpriced labor on a basis where it was economical to fire higher-priced, labor in the Western economies, which undermined middle-income workers and essentially killed the goose that laid the golden egg. The global economy was being fueled by middle-class demand, but when you know the work went to India and China, eventually the middle class was going to run out of spending power. And that's the structural... We today stimulate demand with Keynesian deficit spending. The jobs we create are created in China and India. This has been the problem and it's not going to be solved by deficit spending. Problem is with these massive welfare states we've built, the proportion of the federal debt that is not a federal budget that is non discretionary spending, in other words, entitlement spending, is rapidly growing to over sixty percent of the budget. And it, it will not slow down just because the economy slows down. That's the problem.
0: Yeah, very good points. And folks Get control of your retirement plans at least make them self directed if at all possible, because I think the government will go for the low hanging fruit they'll the The easy money to convert is money in brokerage accounts and savings accounts. That's the easy grab. The harder grab is that self directed stuff where it could be you could have some gold, you could have some real estate some private money lending, you know, who the heck knows. That'll just be so hard to quantify and so hard to grab because it's so fragmented. Any defensive strategy thoughts there?
3: Well, I think self-directed IRAs are good. Um, diversification maybe into some commodities, certainly sure. diversifying the accounts. So it becomes harder to grab your entire account, IRA or 401K, simply because it's deposited in banks. Deposited in banks as CDs is easy
0: to grab. That's for sure. So you want to make it just harder because the low-hanging fruit is what they always go for. Hey, I know you've got to go, but thank you for some quick insights on that and appreciate having you. We'll have you again on soon, okay? Okay, Jason. Thank you. Hey, it's my pleasure to welcome Phil from Dallas to the show. He has a question about entrepreneurship and investments. Phil, how are you? Hey, Jason. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for calling. Yeah. So I, my, my question comes from
4: those of us who are still transitioning and have the desire to move from the, the quote unquote working income trap, as I believe you've, you've called it in the past, to a more business slash passive slash investment type income, whatever you want to call it. And, and I feel like there's a gap. There's a lot of information about what to do once you've arrived. You know, when you have a good chunk of change to try to do something with, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people who want to tell you what to do. Um, and there's a lot of information about the general mindset. You know, you can listen to a Steve Jobs speech. Uh, you can listen to a Tony Robbins tape. You know, you can, these general but uh, mindsets, but unactionable ideas. And so to me, uh, you know, I'm interested in getting into the mindset of somebody who went, went from there to here and where they were at that, that interim period. How, you know, how the sort of where your mindset was, how you started thinking about it, where the drive came from, and then the steps you took, probably some failures leading to some successes. to to get to the point where where you're really investing at a broad scale and living off that income as opposed to working for someone else. And I, I think it's probably relevant to a lot of people in my in my generation, um, or or just at my stage of life, who are you're struggling with that?
0: Right, right, yeah. Good, great question, and it's one that a lot of people have. So you know, I hate to bring it up almost, but in Robert Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Game, he does a pretty good metaphor of this. He calls it the rat race, and when you escape the rat race, it means that your passive income can pay all of your expenses. And most people never get out of the rat race because they never get to the point where they create passive or investment type of income that can pay all their expenses. So the first thing to do is to not, to not use all your income to live, okay? Because you'll never get ahead... If you don't live below your means, you, if you make a million dollars a year or 10 million a year, if you spend 1.2 million or 12 million, you know, you're still, you're still going in the red and that's not good. So you've got to live on about 70% of your income. You've got to figure out a way to do that because then that other 30% can become investable. And this is an old uh, concept, uh, also from the book *The Richest Man in Babylon*, which is a very short, kind of famous old book. And it talks about living on seventy percent, investing ten percent, saving ten percent, and giving ten percent away. So that's the that's the paradigm from that book.
4: Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I just finished. I heard just heard about that book and finished reading it a couple months ago. Oh,
0: great! Well, yeah, then you then you've heard it definitely. So so that's the first thing you've got to do. Your income has got to be ahead of your lifestyle because then you can start. to to get yourself above water and it, it doesn't really take that long in the broad scheme of things. Most people are too impatient because they they want everybody wants instant gratification. But it's surprising how fast that this can start to work out for you in in the course of just a, a few years, which really isn't a long time in the broad scheme of things. So so that's the first thing. And then in terms of if you have a if you have a day job, if you as uh, if if you will a normal day job, starting a business will really help in not only the way that it might become a successful business and generate other income for you, but it will reduce your tax bill because a lot of the expenses that you have as an employee in a normal everyday job can become deductible as a self-employed person. So that's why having a business on the side becomes a great little tool. Now, of course, I have to give the disclaimer. I'm not a tax professional. Check with your tax advisor on this in terms of the legalities of it and so forth. But the the whole idea being that if you have your own business, you pay taxes to some extent on your net income rather than your gross income, whereas an employee, you're taxed at the highest rate because you pay your taxes, then you pay expenses, then you get what's left over. Much better to have income, pay expenses, and then pay taxes after the fact. So, so that's a much better deal, and that's what a business can do for you. So, did you have a question in terms of what kind of business or what types of investments? Give me a little more background, if you would.
4: Yeah, and first, first, I just want to say that's that's great already. I mean, I'd never heard someone specifically say that, and and for that reason, and I think that's that's an awesome point. Yeah, I mean, I, like I, I, what I was thinking is that you know, not everybody's going to have the same road from here to there, so. You know I wasn't looking for a formula, but I, yeah, but I was interested in kind of what you did and if you have anecdotes from other people. That that did certain things that works as well. But I was just looking for, yeah, maybe a little bit more than just the general, but your own experience. Sure, sure. What you tried or what's you know, if you succeeded right away, well, what that was. Yeah,
0: well my experience was just like this. I mean, I've talked about it on the show before, but basically I grew up without much in terms of financial resources and didn't like that very much. When I when I got to about ninth grade, I realized that money is important and it does matter and it's better to have it than not. And so I got my real estate license when I was in college. I was 19 years old and I uh, hung it with Century 21 and I started selling real estate part-time and I did pretty well at it. And the reason I got into real estate though was because I wanted to be an investor and I just didn't know any other way to learn about investing but to just learn the business uh, from kind of the typical perspective as a realtor. So I did that. I started selling real estate and then about six months After I started in the business, one of my clients, uh, a guy named Jim, purchased a condo from me in Huntington Beach, California. And he came back to me and said, I just don't like this property very much. I I had a bad tenant and I want to get rid of it. And why don't you list it for me and, and put it in the MLS and sell it? And I thought, well maybe this is the first opportunity to be my first investment property. And it was. I ended up buying it from him. And I had a, quote unquote, the world would see it as a bad experience, but it was really actually quite a good experience because I had a bad tenant The tenants didn't pay their rent. It was my very first property, and I had to evict these people. And I was managing it myself, and I remember going over to knock on the door, and it was this young couple, and they just gave me excuse after excuse after excuse. I remember I took one of my realtor buddies over there, and he was like a little tougher with them. And uh, (laughs) Excuse after excuse. I had to evict them, and they left the place a total mess, they, they really did leave like a broken down motorcycle in the middle of the living room. And I think I actually heard that story from one of those real estate speakers, but it actually happened to me too. And the place was full of trash when they moved out. So most people would consider that a bad experience, but guess what? It turned into be a pretty good experience because I put almost nothing down on that property. It was a little easier to structure those deals way back then. Nowadays much harder to do that. And then I ended up cleaning up the property and I sold it to a another investor. And then I bought my second property. And by the way, I made a nice profit selling it. Okay. Even though the tenant experience was bad, I had a pretty decent capital gains experience in terms of a a profit. Okay. Like $30,000. And then I bought a condo for myself in Irvine, California, and I didn't really have much money to do it. So I borrowed some money from my grandmother and I bought that property. I paid 102,000 for it. And a year later, I just happened to be lucky and catch luck. I sold it to a guy who would later become a real good buddy of mine, Mike. I sold it to him for $160,000. And then I paid my grandmother back. And because I borrowed the money from her to buy it, I basically put nothing down. So my return was infinite on that property basically and that is when I really really got it about real estate and after that I just started buying up everything I could and I bought several different houses in different areas uh, all around Southern California though and you know it all went well until the market crashed and then I was stuck with one of them for about seven years and it wasn't so great and that's when I learned another lesson and the lesson there as part of my 10 commandments of successful investing is number 1 thou shalt diversify okay and that's not the first commandment it's just one of the lessons i learned from this experience and number 2 uh, is one of the also commandments is thou shalt not gamble and what i was really doing with these properties is that they very rarely made sense from a cash flow perspective in in california you're pretty much a, a speculative investor most of the time Almost all the time, actually. And and so the property's got to make sense the day you buy it from a cash flow perspective. And if it doesn't, you just don't buy it. But I did get lucky on some, and I made some money being a speculator or a gambler, if you will. But, you know, and I always say it's better to be lucky than good. And this time around, back in the early 2000s, I said to myself, you know... I am not going to go through that disaster again that happened in the 90s. This time I'm going to diversify. I'm going to have properties in multiple geographical locations. So if one or two of them go bad, the other two or three might be good. Uh, Hopefully they will be. And then I'll insulate myself from uh, potential downside risk.
4: Okay, and so you, you were then living off of less than your income. You were putting some away. You made your first investment, which though you had basically the worst case scenario at the beginning, It panned out in the end. And then, so you were working up until, I mean, during the the beginning portions, you must have still been working. Yeah.
0: Uh, Oh, well, I'm still working. I mean, I've never stopped working. I love to work. Oh, well, I mean, as far as 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 working for someone else per se, right? Well, I mean, I was working as a realtor. So when, you know, when you're a realtor, are you really working for someone else? No, you're an independent contractor and you set your own hours, you set your own income because you can work hard and make a lot of money or you can be lazy and not make any money. So, you know, I was really always self-employed, if you will even though I didn't own the company or own the business always but that's the that's the deal. Okay. So that's so that pretty
4: much then becomes becomes the path to success as things keep feeding on each other then.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You and and you know it all really uh, was possible because I lived below my income. Now granted, as a realtor, I had a pretty high income most of the time. You know, I did well at it. I worked very very hard and I was very successful in real estate. So again, that's a a business where there's a good risk reward ratio and if you work hard and you take the risk you don't have any security you can do very well and and I did but not all people have that so that's why I say if if you don't want to give up the security of a job if you're in a position of a job now start a business on the side and have be diversified so you'll have something else going on creating income for you and nowadays it's so easy to start a business i mean you just build a website and the world is your oyster. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And I was going seg- to say, that's a good segue. So on, on one of your
4: last podcasts, you um, mentioned that people are more entrepreneurial today in today's generation. And that was that was your observation. And um, I, I was going to say that a lot of that is probably due to the internet. And I think a lot of it is also due to instability. I mean, 50 years ago, people probably suspected that they could work for a company or two their whole life. And then retire with some sort of pension or retirement plan and be
0: okay. And nowadays, I don't think any of us believe that. No, fortunately, fortunately, we've all learned that that, that doesn't work anymore. It is so easy to start a business nowadays. And in, in the internet, there's certainly lots of options there. But there are even offline options that aren't internet related. And there's a great book title that has very good reviews. I have not read this book. But it, I love the title. And it's called The $100 Startup reinvent the way you make a living doing what you love and create a new future. And it's by Chris Gullabue. I guess I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Very good reviews on amazon.com. I would get that book if I were you. There's another book that's very popular as well. It's called The Lean Startup, How Today's Entrepreneurs Use Continuous Innovation to Create Radically Successful Businesses by Eric Ries. Again, you can start a business with very little money nowadays. In the old days. It used to be a lot more expensive, much bigger barrier to entry than there is nowadays.
4: Absolutely. So so if the question is how are things changing in, in, in today's landscape, would that change the way you think about anything or just what what are the differences in how you would think about things in today's landscape versus you know previously?
0: Well, let me answer not exactly that question, because there's one more thing I wanted to say about my real estate career. And this is this is very important. One lesson that I learned from my mother I used to manage two small businesses that she owned when I was in high school and college. And one of them was a Pioneer Chicken franchise, kind of like Kentucky Fried Chicken. Most people have heard of KFC. And it was a competitor to KFC. And it was in a very bad area of Los Angeles. And I remember how big that investment was for her to own that franchise, to buy it. It was $100,000 cash down, $100,000 in loans and $75,000 in equipment leases for all the chicken cooking equipment. And so that was a $275,000 investment. And I just marveled that I went to real estate school and it cost me $99 and I was 19 years old. And when I got into my real estate office, Century 21 Academy in Anaheim, California, when I when I started working there, I remember noticing that the people in the office were all sitting around complaining about why the company didn't do enough for them, why their broker was so bad. And why uh, they didn't want to spend any money to pay for anything. They didn't want to buy promotional materials like realtors that have their picture on the notepad and stuff like that. And, and you know, you could buy a thousand notepads back then for like $180. And I just, I just remember thinking, my gosh, why are these people complaining? I mean, the average commission back then maybe was, I don't know. $5,000, okay? Or 4000 or $5,000. And they're complaining about spending $200 on their business. They won't spend any money. No wonder they're not making any money. No wonder they're complaining. And I thought, I just remembered my mom's experience with that terrible Pioneer Chicken franchise that she had. Over a quarter million dollars invested in it. She saved and saved for years to do that. and And, you know, people didn't treat their career... With enough respect, so even though it is inexpensive to start a business nowadays, it still requires reinvesting in the business and and so I just wanted to kind of make that distinction between I, I guess it sort of addressed your question between how it was back then and how it is today
4: yeah, I mean leverage is obviously a big a big part of your formula then as well as now it would seem and you know, that's a little bit, a little bit harder. Obviously things are, things are tighter in the credit market and much more stringent.
0: In some ways though, that's a good wholesome discipline, you know it, because that, that really makes you think and innovate more. Just throwing money at problems doesn't solve them. Thinking solves problems better than so that. So that's to the
4: government. Though. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's the government's problem. They throw, they just throw money at things and don't think, <laughs> but does, does that help? Does that make sense? Does it address your question?
4: Yeah, I think, I think it absolutely does. And if I can kind of summarize it, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to the answers that get rich quick people don't want to talk about, which is a lot of it comes down to austerity and personal responsibility and living within your means and making the right decisions and then getting out there and, and experimenting, investing and learning all things that are hard you know, to a lot of people. Um, I don't, the way that they want to think about it. So
0: Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing I'd like to say, Phil, about that austerity concept is don't be too austere. When you have successes, do reward yourself along the way so that you set up in your mind, you kind of trick your mind into thinking, hey, if I do this, if I work hard, there's a reward for it. So I don't believe in, like, total austerity. I, mean, I live a pretty nice life and I, I do like to spend money. I'm definitely a consumer, okay? But Spend your money as much as possible on things that actually create wealth instead of things that give the appearances of wealth. And that's the mistake most people are making, moving almost two years ago to Arizona and living near the a s u campus has been really enlightening for me to see how a lot of these college kids think because most of them are so anxious to just make money so they can instantly spend money and and the The problem is that doesn't create a future you've got to you've got to spend money on the things that are investment grade the things that create wealth. Most people just buy themselves a bunch of expenses and obligations. And they do that to usually to impress other people. They want to buy nice cars that depreciate in value. These things are are the wealth destroyers. Owning things that produce income, that's impressive. That's what'll create a future for you.
4: Yeah that's a big that's the one thing I distilled from the Robert Kiyosaki book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that's the problem that I have with some of these books is I could really distill it down to the one most important idea for me from that entire book was that you know wealthy people buy assets and people that are broke buy
0: debts and liabilities. Yeah, they do. They do. They just buy things that cost more money and create more hassle for them when they should buy things that produce and build Guns and butter theory. That's that's really what it's all about. So so good. One other part to this discussion that you didn't necessarily ask, but I, I think you're thinking of it from our pre-recording conversation here is what do you do I mean you know how much does it take like if you want to start as a real estate investor it'll generally take about twenty thousand dollars or so to get into the game of buying your first property and if you want to get into the lending side of the business and do hard money or private lending that'll probably take about fifty to a hundred thousand dollars because you're the lender you can't use leverage but if you can't qualify for a mortgage then you may need to go that route But the other thing to explore is the concept of partners. And like I've talked about on the show, I'm definitely interested in buying more property and partnering with people and being a cash partner where I can put up money on a deal and go in with, you know, I've done this with several of our clients. And it's a very good deal as long as neither party lives in the property. And it's an arm's length transaction for both people. So consider partners, consider investors. Like my second property, I got my grandmother to basically loan me the down payment. And that was a great deal for both of us. She got paid back. I made a bundle of money. So that's what really got me started. And I remember thinking when I sold that property, by the way, going back to that guns and butter and liabilities versus assets concept, I uh, used to really, really want to own a boat. And now I have owned a boat, and now I never want to own a boat again. <laughs> but, I, but I remember thinking at the time, I was in my early 20s, and when I sold that property, I remember having that 60000 bucks in my hand thinking, gosh, I could buy a sailboat. And I'm like, no, I didn't do that. I bought more properties. And then years later, I bought a big yacht. And that was a pretty terrible experience, ultimately. <laughs> Two happiest days of the boat owner's life when they buy it and when they sell it. So that's a, that's a great example of how things cost a lot more than the initial cost. Yeah,
4: and I think that's a good, good pinpoint of, of a divergence point. Whereas if you had made that decision at that point, you'd probably be on a very different path. I mean, it would have really stunted your ability to go down the path that you've gone down if, if you had made a decision like that at that time. Yeah, and so I guess a question too, as a, as a follow-up to what you're saying, so you can get your first property, but you, you still, at, at the cash flow that you get, you still have to bring in the majority of your income, even if you get one or even a couple properties. I mean, it, what, do you, what do you think is the number of the single family home types that your network sells? You know, how many do you typically need to replace your
0: income? Well, it I depends on what your question, income, yeah. nobody, depends about, on what you're, you know, yeah. everybody's yeah. different. So that question cannot be answered. But if you if you look at it like this, if you look at it that each property produces, say, $250 a month in income. Now, of course, it depends how much you put down, what market it's in. There are a lot of variables there. But let's just use that as a round number. $250 in income, which doesn't seem like much, but it's the return on investment that is phenomenal because maybe you only put $20,000 down on that property. Okay, and I'm just thinking out loud here. I don't have exact numbers by any means. But four of those is $1,000 a month. But you get all sorts of tax benefits, especially if you own several properties and you qualify as a real estate professional, okay, which we've talked about on the show before. So eight properties, $2,000 a month, you can start to see how this works. And then in a couple of years, you're gonna have some rent increases and all those 250 a month may turn into $300 a month each. So uh, four properties is now $1,200 and eight properties is now $2,400. And you can see where really, I mean, most people just, they want it all today. You know, I get that. It's that instant gratification mindset that kills most people. But, but in the matter of a few short years, and those t- that time will pass anyway, you might as well make it constructive. You can really get ahead of the game. I mean, it, it is, you know, and keep working. Don't quit your job because then you'll have both incomes. and you might have a business on the side, you'll really have multiple streams of income. You have your day job, you have your business, and you have your real estate investments three forms of good income for you.
4: Absolutely. I want to talk to you about two, two smaller issues that are kind of current, but do we have a couple minutes or should we? Uh,
0: yeah, just quickly. I got to go do another interview, but just quickly, sure.
4: Okay, well, I just wanted. I know you're kind of your, your thoughts on gold, so I don't need to get too much into that, but I just thought it might be, you might be interested to know that I think gold buggery is very much alive and well. Um, oh, I think I so the too. Recent, yeah, the, the recent plunge, um, you know, some people are claiming it was a premeditated paper sell-off or whatever, but the physical demand has gone through the roof since that happened. So there's, there's, no, uh, <laughs> there's no end in sight to, to the gold buggery. And the, and the recent drop just made people really hit the mints for, for everything as, as far as I can. But it, it's just funny to watch all the articles that came out two weeks ago, that the gold rush is over and gold is dead and the, the gold bugs are wrong. And then this week, everybody's parroting, oh, physical demand is through the roof. And you know, the media just feeds on these things and makes it a frenzy. But... You
0: know what? Gold bugs are very illogical, <laughs> okay? And th- those people, if gold is up, it's great. Buy more. If gold is down, it's great. Buy more. The, the, you know, the, they just make no sense to me. Gold is totally overrated. It's okay, but it's overrated. It's completely overrated.
4: It's a defensive strategy, as you say.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
4: And, and the other thing I want to talk about really quickly was Bitcoin. And, you know, this is such a new thing. I really just wanted to say two things because I know you had talked about it briefly on your last show. But there's really two things that to me kind of uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings and, and I think a little bit of ignorance about it. And I, the first point I wanted to make was in regards to the uh, people are, are comparing it to the tulip frenzy. And I'm, I'm pretty strongly I mean, there's lots of things you could say about Bitcoin, about why it may or may not work. But I think the tulip frenzy aspect of it is kind of crazy. I mean, you know, a tulip is a tulip. And, you know, is a degradable substance and it doesn't have any intrinsic value. Whereas with Bitcoin, you know, I think there is value in a pseudo anonymous currency that can be used worldwide with virtually non-existent commissions when you compare it to the current choices. So I, I have to say that I think people are thinking about it wrong and saying you know, there's no inherent value in, a, in the idea of a Bitcoin, but there is inherent value in the network and, and what you can sort of accomplish with it.
0: Yeah the the problem with the whole bitcoin craze and you know I've really studied this whole bitcoin thing quite a bit is and I don't own any bitcoin by the way I'll just make that disclosure but I think that the governments and central banks are just going to shut that down they're they're going to They're going to say it's used by terrorists. It's the same way they shut the gift cards down to some extent. They really put a lot of restrictions last year on those gift cards, those Amex gift cards and Visa gift cards that you can buy at the CVS or uh, Rite Aid or uh, Walgreens stores or any store for that matter. They've made those things a lot harder to use. And Bitcoin is even worse I have a feeling the regulators are going to come down on Bitcoin. They're going to find an excuse to do it, and they're going to do it as a, a coordinated effort uh, with governments around the world, and Bitcoin is going to be in the shadows forever. I, I just Yeah, I, I, I would don't, agree I don't with don't that. Think I think if
4: it ever becomes a real threat to fiat currencies, they're going to they're destroy it. And man. hey,
0: Bitcoin is a fiat currency. That is true. I, <laughs> and, you know, I
4: think there's one psychological aspect of it that people aren't really realizing, which is that it's such a, it's, there's a limited amount, and that's good, but it's such a limited amount that as it goes up in value, what you're really using is such a fraction that I don't even think the person of average mathematical ability can really use it as a, as a unit. You know, I played around with it a couple of Bitcoins and I bought an ebook, and it was such a fraction of a Bitcoin to buy it that I had to make the calculation to a dollar to, to figure out what value I was paying and whether, you know, whether it was worth it. Right,
0: right. And, and therein, therein lies the problem also with gold. That's one of the problems with it too, is that gold is too big of a chunk. It can't be split yeah, up enough. Yeah. You can't it's really, really hard use to, it. Yeah, yeah it's too, too hard to use.
4: Okay, well, yeah, I I appreciate it. That's uh, really all the topics I had. (laughs) All right, Phil.
1: Well, hey, thanks so much for calling, okay?
4: Sure, Jason. Thanks.
1: This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.